stand out from the crowd? Are you looking for exclusive content you can't get anywhere else? Sign up for the shoulder of Orion Patreon at bladerunnerpodcast.com slash support and show the world you're something special. The following audio entertainment is brought to you by the kind folks at Tyrell Corporation, reminding you that civil registration isn't just common sense, it's the law. Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. I am your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Patrick Green, Dan Ferlito. And today we are here with a long-awaited, somewhat overdue, but not crazy overdue episode on the comics, again, returning uh, for the second time to this ongoing Titan comic series from uh, Michael Green, uh, should I have this in front of me, Michael Green, Mike Johnson, and Andres Guinaldo. Uh, it is currently on, it just, the, the second trade paperback just released, uh, a few weeks ago. And the third one is coming out early next year in 2021. The comics of course are ongoing. They're being published in single issues as comic books are. So they're available as we go along, but we figured we'd take a, a moment now that the second collection is out, uh, and go into where things are in the comics right now, what thematically is going on, where these characters are, um, and what's up. So before we get into this more, just a quick little heads up. We will be addressing spoilers in this, so if you're not up to date with the comic books, I suggest you get up to date. You can get them online. You can buy them digitally straight from Titan. You can get them at most comic distributors or comic stores out there. Uh, if your store doesn't have it, you can call and have it, you know, uh, ordered. Um, we're going to be covering issues five, six, seven, and eight tonight, which are available as a collected trade paperback edition called Off World, uh, which you can get on Amazon for like ten bucks right now. Um, or you should get from a comic store who could use the money. No, it's it's like seventeen. Sixteen, yeah. Okay, we'll get it from a comic store. I don't know. I don't know. How much yeah, I I would also encourage you to get it from a comic store, but the cover price is sixteen ninety nine. I think for each volume. Right, right, right. Um, but uh, regardless, it is it is very much worth the investment, in my opinion. Um, the one thing I will say before we get into this, also though, in defense of the individual issues. Is that this has done? Uh, this series has done an incredible job, and I say that as somebody who reads too many comic books, an incredible job of having regular variant covers published for everything. That I, I, so I've been collecting every single one. There's one that I'm missing, which is a New York City Comic Con variant. But other than that, I have every single one, and I, I have like freaking 120 of these comic books at this point. It's I, getting out of control. I was just gonna ask because I see you guys doing this, like you and like Rick Howard, uh, yeah, who's who's a contributor and and manages our uh, field of Calantha page. Um, you guys are like showing all these covers and I'm like, hold on. These aren't just single pieces of paper. These are all individual. So I'm like, so for each issue of the comic, you own like six copies of each one with different six covers? or seven, between five <laughs> to seven, depending on the, on the issue. Where the yeah. fuck do you fit shit in your house? I don't understand. Like, this is why I've waited for the volumes. Cause I'm like, I, cause I have the, the boom comics, right? The Blade Runner prequels right, and stuff. Right. And now I realize why they were cheap and easy to buy online. Cause I'm like, Oh, someone doesn't want this like 10 inch stack of comics when you can buy the collection, which right. for me, not being a comic book collector me just wanting the art and the story, the volumes make way more sense. But like, where are you oh, putting yeah. all this shit, Patrick? Well, uh, Dan, there's these things called boxes. I don't and know if shelves? you've heard of a of a box or a shelf before, but I have <laughs> I have comic boxes. See, that I keep you can in see our like closet. with Dan, the difference between us three, Patrick's background, mine, and Dan's. <laughs> <laughs> Dan, <laughs> Dan is <laughs> nerd. Nerd can't see this on Not video. Nerd. <laughs> yeah, J- Jamie is in a bunker uh, with artwork covering everything. There's I, my uh, Phantom I, I'm, of the I'm Opera mask of, right behind. Uh, you have a chandelier coming in. Dan is in Abu Ghraib right now. I don't, I don't know if anybody can see that. Okay. My bedroom is a bit of a blank slate. It is true. <laughs> I, I do have boxes of comics in my garage that I've been collecting since I was little. So I get that. But you those do, are yeah. 
those are all different. It, what I don't get is collecting like seven different issues of the same exact comic just because it has a different cover. Like that's a lot. Because they're really worth money. That's why. Well, they will be worth, but I'm not going to sell them. The, the reason is because, for example, tonight I, ha- I was talking to my cousin Miles on the phone, who is another huge Blade Runner fan and a huge comic collector. And we were talking about how, you know, his store is having a harder time keeping up with all the variant covers than, than mine is. And I was saying how I can't wait for when we can see humans again and we can hang out. You know, I can show him and he can like, you know, take him home and we can like trade variant editions of things because part of the fun is just having it, you know, in the first place and finding it because sometimes it's kind of a challenge. For example, there was a free comic book day um, edition that came out, which is a huge deal because free comic book day is like a national might even be global probably is event where comic stores are open uh, you know, at the same time on a Saturday in May, and they have all these free editions of various comic books available that the publishers make exclusively for free comic book day. So that's been how I've been introduced to a lot of great work in the past. And Blade Runner 2019 was one of those comics this year. So like, you know, if you didn't go to free comic book day, you probably couldn't have gotten a copy of it. But um, a lot of us went out and, and got one or called our stores to have them sent like I did. Um, and a lot of people who were just sort of casually walking into free comic book day with their kids or whatever, you know, stumbled into a Blade Runner comic and were like, oh, my God. And of course, since then, you know, this thing has won industry awards. It's been selling extremely well. There are now multiple future um, versions coming out, including an origin story. There's there's a whole number of things happening. Anyway, so tonight we wanted to take a moment, uh, of course, between these two trade paperback editions to talk about where things are in the story with this off-world edition. So before we kind of dive into that, uh, what are you guys' overall thoughts on the comics and how they've been turning out? Yeah, I I wanted to add uh, in terms of the variant covers also. Okay, I get it, and I'm not trying to poop on people who do have the luxury of having the space for all these comics, but um, they do do a nice job in the volumes of giving you slightly smaller versions of all the variant covers in the back, I think. I don't know if they include Free Comic Book Day. That might be one that's missing, but generally you can at least take a look at uh, and own a smaller version of each variant cover, which is nice because I certainly appreciate the artwork and there's several Sid Mead uh, versions that they've pulled out of the archives and used for artwork that um, maybe it was used for other promotions, but was never really used in the original Blade Runner um, as is, which is really cool. I love, especially now that he passed, unfortunately. Uh, it's nice to see his work displayed like that. Um, yeah, so I kind of forgot about the series for a second because I was just kind of waiting for volume two, and then I realized it had been out for a while. So I only read this recently, so it was cool to get back into it. I reread the first volume and now the second set. So we're uh, two-thirds of the way through as uh, as of this recording. And um, I think probably, yeah, I have to say, aside from all the other details that we'll get into, the main thing that hit me is that aside from a very short battle sequence on Kalantha in the anime um, short before 2040 that was released prior to 2049 coming out, this is the first time that we are shown visual imagery of off-world from canonical sources in any kind of um, extended or meaningful way. And I knew that was happening because at the end of volume one, um, Asha, she leaves for off world. And so you're like, okay, well, I guess we're going to have to see something in the next series. And it kind of reminded me of that feeling of, you know, we talk about how did you feel when 2049 was announced? I'm like, I don't know if this needed a sequel and I'm kind of concerned about what they're going to do. Well, I had similar feelings about off world because I was like, Ooh, I don't know how much we want to show about off world. It's, it's kind of like when you think of Roy Batty's speech about Tan, the Tannhauser gate, like I like the fact that the Tannhauser gate is kind of a mystery. I don't need to see what that is because it's going to force too much visual imagery on something that I have sort of an ethereal metaphorical imagery of. Right. And so I was a little concerned about this issue um, or this this set of issues coming out depicting off-world. But I have to say that I was pleasantly surprised because I felt that it was done tactfully and showed you what Blade Runner is good at showing you. Meaning, 
aside from the very direct references to the first film, keeping it separate for a second, just talking about what you see from the workship and the planet that they're on, etc. It's very much a microcosm. So you're getting this claustrophobic, oppressive view of how these two replicants in hiding are living and then how the other replicants lives are a little bit, but it's very much like uh, getting an insight into a prison camp or something, right? Where they're like uh, trading goods and talking about day to day stuff. There's no, like there's not a lot of bigger picture stuff. Um, And I like that because again, it's showing you off world, but it's showing you off world from this very, not myopic, but ranged in scope of these characters. And I thought that worked really well. It reminded me, of course, a lot of seeing the inside of the Nostromo on Alien or something like that, where you're getting this very realistic feel to this other world. Yet, it's all about the intimacy and connection between these characters. What's what's going on with Ash and the child and um, their identity that they're covering up and what's going on with these other replicants and their working situation and how the plot unfolds. So overall I was really satisfied with how they did that. So I'll, I'll start off with that. Just jumping in for a second. It's interesting. Almost all of the off world scenes are actually interiors. You know Yes, that? I noticed that like most of the time spent off world, you can just kind of see glimpses of it. Yeah. Sorry, Which was a good that. idea on their part. They don't show you too much. I think, um, that the artwork is just beautiful. Um, each each cell, each page, it's just expertly uh, drawn, and the colors are gorgeous, and the art direction is really good. Um, it's really top notch. Like I don't, I don't read enough comics ever to know like what's good quality or what isn't good quality because some comics aren't good quality that I do know. But this comic, to me, these this series seems like top of the line to me. Like, it's just beautiful. Each face, sometimes, I mean, I've read comics where the faces are, I don't know if it was just an aesthetic choice that they made where it seemed too impressionistic. The faces seemed like they did a little bit, but the rest of it is in shadow and it's all. And so, but it looks like they were trying to hurry along and they have a smaller budget and they only have like five pages of color or whatever. Um, but I was really, really impressed as a non-reader of comic books, uh, by how gorgeous each, each, uh, chapter, I suppose was in this series. Yeah. And and I, I recognize what Jamie's saying from my limited experience in comics, but my main experience is from reading, um, like Bonelli Italian comics, which are like Dylan dog and Tex, And there's a lot of Zago. There's a lot of really famous ones. Like the Italian comic industry is very renowned and well-known in the comic world because they've been doing really good work for a long time. But what you have often is these, um, titular characters, usually with a sidekick or, you know, there's like Dylan dog has like this Groucho Marx impersonator. whose name is Groucho. And like, he's his sidekick. He's the paranormal investigator who's British and lives in London anyways. But, they rotate 10 artists or something through that series. Right. And so you definitely learn your favorites and which styles you like more. Like Jamie saying, some are more impressionistic, some are more um, true to like real life. Um, And you, I remember getting the issues and it's like the writing's good and stuff, but I'm like, Oh, this is the artist I don't like. He draws kind of sloppy or too gritty. Right. Or this is the artist I really like. Like my dad likes that old school Superman style, the like really clean lines and very knitted kind of design. Um, And I think one of the things that's cool about this is that you have a consistent artwork from Guinaldo all the way through, right? Correct me if I'm wrong, Patrick, but he's doing all the artwork for all the issues. And I think that's appropriate for what this is. I agree. um, For for the scope of this. For these 12 issues, it's nice that you have continuity with the art um, because you don't have to have this, you know, 12 times jump in adjusting your point of view dealing with different artists. So I, I really like that aspect of it. I just wanted to jump in and throw that in there. 
Yeah, the workload that Guinaldo goes through on this is really kind of extraordinary. In addition to illustrating, to doing the pencils for every single issue, um, he also is doing a cover for each issue too, which of course he doesn't have to do because there's 700 variant covers made for everything too, but he's also doing those. And the type of art that he does, you're both absolutely correct, is really work intensive. There's a ton of line work. There's a ton of depth to it. The backgrounds, I mean, for the most part, even artists whom I love, like somebody like Mark Bagley, who does a lot of Marvel comics, like his figures are incredible. His anatomy is incredible. His perspective is incredible. His expressions are incredible. The backgrounds are usually a little bit kind of cheating a little bit because he's putting a lot of time into the characters, right? Um, with Guinaldo, there's like none of that. I feel like every single layer of the artwork is so intricate. And you see that nowhere better than on um, the splash pages, which to my mind are deployed really well. And very occasionally, but when they are, they're really, really beautiful. And and the first collection, I don't remember which issue it was, we spent quite a bit of time unpacking on the show um, one of those splash pages, which was the interior of the spinner. Do you remember that? And we were like looking at the amount of detail. Oh, yeah, it was so cool. Remember that with all the gauges and the stuff that was on the readouts, but also like the things that were happening outside the windows of it. And just thinking like, man, I mean, as for somebody who sucks at drawing, like, but can do it, but isn't very good at it. That would have taken me a month. It also would have been one twentieth as good as that. I mean, <laughs> but the amount of, of time that that takes is extraordinary. Um, my fate, one of my favorite pages in this entire collection is this one, which I'll hold up for you guys, uh, which is, um, it's so, so, so it's six years earlier and Ash and Chloe are reading this pamphlet from Arcadia, right? Which is this kind of promised land, um, in bed and she's kind of putting her to sleep. And then, uh, and then it cuts. It does a jump cut to 2026, so it goes six years up when things are falling apart. And the cut is accompanied by this text that says, "So in back in, back in 2020, um, Ash is reading to her, saying, only on Arcadia, now accepting settlements on a limited basis for qualified applicants. Heaven isn't a place you can imagine." And then it cuts to 2026, and it says, "Heaven waits for you off world." And what we see is an enormous burning brig on a really craggy lunar surface and exploding and flames going up. And the juxtaposition of this idea of heaven being what people expect when they go off world of this promised land, right? And then seeing what it actually is, which is a prison camp, essentially, this incredibly harsh and unforgiving and frightening place with a burning ship in the middle of it. Um, That juxtaposition just works for me so well. And so something that I want to make sure we talk about is the characters, because, because... I'll be upfront. This particular arc does not work for me as well as the first one did in some ways because there wasn't that really emotional kind of heart pulling out core to it. The first collection ends with the with the fourth issue, which I think is just one of the best comic books I've read in years, with the battle sequence on the island and and you know the island of the replicants and they're escaping. Um, this one has moments kind of like that throughout, but it doesn't for me have that same emotional pull. But there's one character who really gets to me a lot, and it's not just because of his name or his hairstyle, but it's, it's Padraque, right? Patty, the replicant, who reminds me a lot of Sapper um, in a lot of ways because he is a labor model, right? He's a mining model, um, but he is at his heart kind of like Sapper, a, a poet. Like he's, you know, he's marking down the days. This whole collection starts with him in his diary writing that for everybody else in this colony – he can assume all these other labor models that every single day is the same, but for him, it's not. You know, he says like, for me, this day is unique because I'm remembering it because I'm writing it down. Um, and that, you know, I, I, again, it's it's tough because we always use human on this show like it's a milio- like it's a meliorative adjective, like it's a good thing when I don't know if it necessarily is. But for the sake of conversation, it's a very human thing to do, right? To try to document your time and to try to give it meaning, um, at least in the way that we usually talk about people being human. Um, and I love that we get to see this in the beginning through his eyes. And then, of course, he you know dies at the end of this collection. Um, but the risk that he takes for Chloe, the fact that he doesn't get his eye removed, the fact that he breaks off from the pack, the fact that he spirits her away with these insurgent replicants... Um, knowing the danger that will put both of them in, but choosing to do it for her sake. Um, There's something about him that really reminds me of Sapper a lot. I would agree. This series didn't really impact me as much as the first series did, the first few episodes or uh, books or whatever. Um, I felt like the story was overly complicated. It was, um, I just couldn't, I didn't, there wasn't an in. However, the balancing act for me was how beautiful each page was. Um, I was like, each page I turned, I was like, wow, this is just, I want a poster of all of these cells. They're beautiful. Um, and 
I yeah, I just had a hard time connecting. I do lo- like a couple of the idea, like some of the ideas they presented when you see at the end Cleo's mother. Isn't it Cleo? Not Chloe. It's Cleo, isn't it? Oh, it's a Cleo. Oh, yeah, I was saying. I Chloe think it's Cleo. Yeah, no, it's Cleo. Yeah, I just want to make sure. Um, you see his mother, her her mother reappear. But she's not her mother. She's a replicant with her mother's memories. And she was a replacement um, because Chloe's mother. And I love the idea of replacing humans with replicants and what that means. And um, it, it, it had me thinking about this idea of what replicants are in a way that I hadn't thought of before. Um, that what were humans using replicants for? Maybe they lost a spouse. Maybe they lost a child. A replicant can bring them right back. Um, and you put those memories in or whatever they need to do, and there's your child back, and they don't know anything different. Um, and a couple of questions that I had. To your point, Patrick, um, you're talking about Patty and the other replicants. A question that I had when I was reading, was I was thinking shouldn't these replicants be pretty cool? Like when we meet Kay, he's fairly quiet and passive and kind of robotic. And I was thinking, shouldn't these replicants be the same? Shouldn't how, how are they? Yeah, but well, I, I suppose my question was then how are these things programmed or manufactured? If they, if they can just sort of do what they want to and they, they are essentially like us. How are they different aside from their strength and their being manufactured? I, that was just a question that I had when I was reading. And I was like, I, it would be interesting if amongst, if you had a group of replicants, they're all like essentially robotic and quiet because they're just programmed to be laborers, to be whatever they you know, pleasure models or whatever. So there's these quiet, submissive slaves because that's how they were made. Maybe not programmed yet because there's not a lot of Nexus eights. So it was just a question that I had in terms of replicant society and how they've essentially flipped their script and decided to be more psychologically, emotionally, and how that happened to so that we're seeing them presented to us in the way that they are in the comic. Whereas with Kay, we see this um, quiet uh, journey to his awakening. However, in 2019, you see all of those replicants fighting and running and killing just for their lives. Um, so obviously maybe I don't, I'm, I'm just wondering how that happens with them, how they how they become rebellious, how they buck the system. Is there something that happens with them psychologically? And that's not explained. And I would like that explained to understand how they are more like humans and not more like replicants. That's sort of convoluted, but yeah. it was on my mind. No, 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 no. I think that's a really good point. And that's something that in, in general with replicant writing or with the way that they're portrayed in film, I, I, I also kind of battle with that sometimes where I'm like, well, they feel more empathetic than they're supposed to, or they feel more mm-hmm. like, you know, they feel less like they were manufactured or something like that. I think in this particular case, uh, it's addressed a couple of times where, you know, so both Cleo and, and Patty um, and others in the book mention the fact that they're combat model, models specifically as a way of talking about like that's why they're behaving like this. So there must have been among Nexus 8's combat models just the sort of testosterone fueled, you know, uh, behavioral pattern, I would think. But also, I think you have to remember that we're watching an insurgency, like we're watching specifically, you know, armed militants who are uh, liberating replicants right Mm -hmm. so they are they are the converts they're they're the the converts the zealots like they're the ones who are you know broken for lack of a better term uh, according to their protocols so i think that's part of it but i also think there is there is something quote unquote inhuman in in the way that they behave in that they are so ruthless and so like just instantaneous in their in their actions um which of course you know zealots that are human are too but but this is like there's just not even a second of forethought they're just they just straight up just murder people um and they live knowing that they will be murdered too like there's a, mo- a moment when one of them says you know I'm, I'm supposed to be the hunter i'm not used to being hunted right um and I, I think that that bravado that sort of you know over the top um testosteronia i think has something to do <laughs> with their programming and the fact that they are they have nothing to lose 
and that they're kind of off the chain a little bit. And I do like how, um, just briefly, how it's contrasted with Patty so beautifully because he all he's also atypical for a replicant and that he was created to be a miner, right? He was created to be a basically a mule. Um, and there's a lot of discussions with with Cleo and, and he where he's, where she, you know, because he looks at her and he says, you know, you're different, aren't you? And she looks at him and says, you're different, aren't you? Because cause he's not supposed to be doing the things that he's doing. He's not supposed to be, I mean, he's bartering for pens for more ability to write like he's stealing so that he can get writing implements it's very atypical behavior for a replicant and i think at the end of the day you know it reminds me a little bit of and actually something else you said earlier reminds me of this too you know people some people clone their pets right so that after their death they'll have like a clonal replicant of of their animal many times actually oprah has cloned her dog like four times really (laughs) i didn't know that um, but something that comes up a lot with people who have done that is, is they're disappointed because it's not the same dog, they're different. right? Mm-hmm. They're different. Um, and I think that there is something to be said for that, that, you know, you can manufacture something and you can put all the elements in place the way you think they're going to be. But, but organisms are complex. Life experience is complex. And these replicants, whether they were born or manufactured, they're, they're living a, a, a life, you know? Sure. Yeah. A lot can happen. That, that's well, kind of the way I think And DNA is just computer programming. It's not essentially you're not programming their soul. So their soul or whatever you want to call it, whether you're agnostic or whatever, that, that to your point, it's going to um, iterate itself differently depending on a varying amount of your circumstances, your experiences, um, whatever. Um, But I think what calls into question, and we'll probably do an episode on this at one point, at some point, hopefully soon ish is what exactly are replicants was i was reading this i'm like what well what are these things what what's their protocol aside from being manufactured to be this or that or whatever and then i was thinking of avatar briefly just because they cloned these big beastie things the blue things I fucking hate that movie um, so much but and so all of a sudden there was in that movie you had that guy in the wheelchair able to get in the body and then go walk. And Sigourney Weaver's character did the same thing. Um, But our replicants, like there's just so much unknown about them. Um, So I, I, so what this series, this off world series of four episodes or comics really immerses us in replicant culture to some degree. It's certainly an affected replicant culture. It's not like the intended replicant culture, of man who created these things. Of course, the people who create these things want them to go off and do their own thing and shut up and whatever. Um, so I, I've come away from this reading with way more questions than I have. I'm not actually very interested. I felt like the story was overly complicated. I didn't really care. Um, I, by the end, those the discussions with um, Ash and... Uh, the other replicant who is Cleo's mother. Um, those were very, very interesting discussions that they were having, like um, why she was there, who she was. And I thought, okay, I'm, I'm in. They have me right now. But the rest of it, I was just like, oh, this is just too complicated. And I missed a little bit of the simplicity. Um, and it felt a little bit like Alien 3. Not that I don't love that movie, obviously, but it felt, I f- it, and it reminded me Aliens too. It felt very, it took on a very different tone. Um, which is not a bad thing. It's just, I was trying to understand exactly what was happening and it was confusing to me. Hmm. Well, why don't we actually just quick before Dan, before we jump in with your thoughts, let, let me give like a really quick snapshot of the plot in these issues just to make sure that we're all because I, I might be misinterpreting it too the, the way the way that I kind of read it was that for the past six going on seven years Ash and Cleo have been living off world in this colony together but living under different names so Ash is this uh, you know living as somebody who works there under a different name and uh, and Cleo is living as a young boy with a different name um, and that that's how they're sort of surviving and they're staying off the grid uh, they their plans are interrupted by an uprising of of uh, replicants who are liberating other replicants, um, 
And uh, I also just quickly on that, I think part of why those replicants in particular act that way is because they're really the tip of the spear too. Don't forget, they probably killed a lot of other combat models who didn't want to go along with the plan too. So I think that the, we're, we really are seeing the zealots of the zealots at, at this point. Anyway, so so they come, they liberate you know a bunch of replicants who were there. Uh, among them, Patty, who takes Cleo with him as a you know as as who's living under this assumed identity to try to you know get Cleo off to somewhere safe um along the way height who is a blade runner who was hired by alexander selwyn who we remember from the first four issues uh is tracking down cleo and um ash and uh finds ash because of her back brace thing and, and is able to use that as a way to track her down finds ash uses her basically as collateral to be able to get to cleo um and uh, that kind of gets, and then Ash eventually goes along with it, puts the brace on, emerges as who she actually is, which is a Blade Runner. We see a little bit of Ash's backstory also, which I really love. I, I lo- it's only like one page, but I really love it. It talks about how her mother left off world when she was a, a little girl um, and her grandmother kept telling her that she would come back again and she never did. And there's a beautiful line there where she says something about how, you know, in the city you can never see the stars, which I think has really stuck with me a lot. Anyway, um, so Hythe starts trying to f- track down these replicants because Hythe is, is looking for Cleo as well as the replicants, and they have a shared interest in that. And um, they eventually find them. They've had their eyes taken out for the most part so that they can have their serial numbers erased. Uh, chaos ensues. Isabel Selwyn's replicant uh predecessor uh not predecessor yeah predecessor shows up successor 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 yeah i almost said sequel <laughs> right. almost said sequel <laughs> sequel isabel sequel um and she uh aids and abets these two cleo and ash to be able to get back on world again and to be safe because well actually no sorry no never mind hang on cleo continues to arcadia ash goes back on world where she feels she belongs and Isabel's replicant successor goes with Cleo to try to forge a new life with her on this paradise. Um, so we're, we end back where we began to a degree, which is that Ash is a lone replicant. Um, Patty was killed in the chaos. Hythe was killed as well. Uh, and we are essentially at a reset moment. But the big reset that is not happening is that Alexander Selwyn is still very much hunting for his daughter, and for this rogue replicant successor that we're talking about, and that Ash is now back on, you know, who who was the most highly regarded Blade Runner of her time, has now returned to Los Angeles and is hunting again. But hunting what? We don't really know yet. Is that, did that capture it? Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty good. Okay. I, I think when Jamie was talking about, and he's right, I think that we have discussed... Um, doing an episode on replicant production and getting not to ruin the mythology of it and get too specific about things that are left kind of amorphous in this, in the films. Um, But we do want to do an episode on how replicants are created and what that process is like, the difference between the models, et cetera. Um, One thing I think Jamie is getting the effect of is something that actually came up when we were doing Gethsemane, uh, which, you know, takes place at the same time as this, basically 2020. So a little bit into this storyline. And that is that there is a progression and evolution of replicant manufacture that we see from the first film to 2049 and in between, right? Where we see, we don't see Nexus fives and prior, but we, presume that they're like rubber skin and like kind of robotic and you know a different thing nexus sixes are this first human-like iteration but they don't have memory implants and they're a little bit unstable where right we see that in the performance of the um actress in the first film and then we get nexus eights um in 2049 And in the shorts in between, right? And so, again, this is a company, right, that's trying to be profitable and make these things that are more human than human. And so they keep improving on this product. And so the 8 was the first model that was mass production with memory implants, more stable, um, 
but they didn't realize, I think, that with stability and more fleshed out personality, these eights were also more likely to rebel and more likely to be seeking a life for themselves, right? That's the big difference between K and the replicants he's hunting in 2049 is that Nexus nines are built to obey and they've sort of removed something from them where they don't have as much free will ostensibly. Obviously K makes his own decisions by the end, but it's a struggle, right? Whereas Sapper was more of a fugitive was more like the replicants that we see here. I think there's a philosophical comparison there as well. So I think that's a lot of what we're seeing in terms of the questions Jamie's at. And it's not like I'm going to answer your questions here, but I think a little bit of insight is that we're seeing a little bit more of an exploration of these Nexus 8 models, right? Where Tyrell sort of took it in a more real, more human direction, but to the point where it was too much, right? Where it's like, oh, now we're not going to be able to control them. And so that's when Wallace came out with these nines where he he was able to maintain their intelligence and strength and all those other attributes that are good for what they need to do, but tone down their sort of questioning of their place in society and their um, rebellious nature. So I think there's a little bit of that that is being explored here, which makes sense since uh, Michael Green's involved. And so we're talking about a writer who's well steeped in the background stories of, of – um, of both the shorts and 2049, et cetera. So I think there's a little bit of that going on. And in terms of replicant evolution, and this is something clearly we need to do an episode on because we talk about doing an episode on it, but also we also talk about talking about doing it like a lot <laughs> on these episodes lately. But I, I, I believe that the Nexus phase was that it signified the point where the, the you know, manufactured beings were identical to humans, essentially. So I think from Nexus one through five, I, I think that they are all essentially, you know, what we see, just they're behaviorally kind of different. The Nexus six, of course, rebelled. And that was a whole issue that led to the blackout. And then Nexus seven, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I think that um, <clears throat> uh, that they are, it's, it's an interesting other thing to look at which is if you have control over people's behavior and you have control over their, their impulses, what will that make you do next? You know, and the humans, I mean, Alexander Selman is one of these people, right? He's an industrialist who creates, doesn't he create, he's a replicant engineer, isn't he? Doesn't he work with Tyrell? I, he, I don't I have to go no. back to the first set. He does something different. I can't remember, but he does something know, but he, different. But, he, but he's, an, he's an engineer um, of some kind. Um, and, and like, you know, if you, if you have this godlike ability to create life, you know, by divine, you know, cause, cause it's, you know, immaculately concepted life in some ways, um, what you what you do with that, uh, is, is enormously telling of who you actually are. Um, so I will say that the, you know, the, we, now that we're back on earth again, I, I really recommend you, you guys also pick up the issues at least digitally just to read it. Cause they're, they're really, really good. And, and I think that this series for me has been. Uh, genuinely surprising because I uh, I really expected something a little more predictable um, and a little less character heavy. And what I'm really happy with is that we've come away with this thing with these characters that are so indelible and that I, I, I feel very connected to. I, I, I really feel like I understand the plight of these people and I understand where they live and why. And that even though it kind of looks and feels like Blade Runner from an aesthetic standpoint, it, it's it's really new storytelling. Um, and, and of course now we're going into new series because this will be ongoing. And, uh, and I, I, I really like, sometimes I kind of pinch myself that we actually got this, that this is, you know, there's a lot of things that stop and start. We, we were talking about this earlier vis-a-vis alien, right? A lot of things where it seems like something's going to happen and then it kind of doesn't, or something doesn't actually come out or maybe it does come out and then it isn't quite what we expected or, you know, it's, it's very easy to screw this up. And this is like an ongoing comic series by a first party writer who actually co-wrote the, you know, one of the films. And it is like that level of quality. It feels filmic to me. It feels like I would love to see a movie out of this shit. I think it'd be great. Um, but I also don't want to because the movie's already in my imagination because they've done such a wonderful job bringing it to life. And again, I really cannot justify, I, I cannot say enough. The creative team here, having Michael Green handle the, the canonical writing and making sure that this feels like Blade Runner, having Mike Johnson, who's a comics expert, make sure that it feels like a comic book, and then having Andres Guinaldo do this just incredibly beautiful and and well thought out artwork 
Um, it's just a team that I, I, it's a, it's a dream team. Like I absolutely adore reading these comic books and, and I hope we get many more years of this stuff. And I kind of feel like we might, cause it's been very successful. And this idea of having contained arcs of 12 issues is paying off. People are buying it. And, um, so here's to the future. Let's, let's get some more good shit. Yeah. I, I had a couple of details on this volume that I want to talk about, but also, but while yeah. you're talking about the future. So, um, yeah, so there's a whole, there's going to be an origin series. There's a 2029 series. So are each of these 12 issue series or are these like entire longer series that they're talking about? What do you know about it so far? Dan's like, because I don't know. I have the shelf space for this shit. I don't know where these boxes are <laughs> going. These goddamn volumes. One page. One page. No. Uh, so when we talked to David Leach, the the chief editor of this stuff, uh, he he already Which we told should get us, back on was, again. We should get him back on the show again. He told us a year and a half ago that the, their plan, and he said this: if things go well, our plan is to keep doing self-contained arcs of, and I think he said twelve to eighteen issues, uh, but. Don't quote me. I guess you can quote me on it because I said it on the podcast a while a, a long time ago, so it's out there. But but it's it's something like that. It's 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 a it's it's self-contained stories that are in universe that show different sides of things. Um, and so I, I'm assuming that that's what will continue to happen, which is great because it's a really good way to make sure you're not screwing up continuity from a canon standpoint. And that, as somebody who, as I said before, reads a lot of comic books is really easy to do. And then you have to retcon things and you have to make, you know, dream sequences and you have to have people waking up in other dimensions and shit. And it just gets so complicated. The idea of having little contained arcs is is just great because you can take care of all of the moving parts within that story. You can make sure it fits and then you can close it. And you can be like, okay, there's that story. Maybe you don't know the answer to this, but I guess my question more specifically was, is Blade Runner 2019 a 12-issue contained yes. thing? And then origins is going to be a 12 issue thing and then 2029 okay so these labeled things are different series that we're going to get that are each one contained arc okay got it right that that's that seems to be the the plan well um what i'll I'll pass it to jamie just because i don't want to take over but um i just wanted to say one point for patrick am i wrong or is arcadia reminiscent of something in Bioshock. Bioshock, yeah, Arcadia. Okay, there is a connection there. Oh yeah, well, uh, but Arcadia also is a. Uh, it's I, I. Is it? It's it's a. Isn't it a Greek? Don't know the history of the word to be honest. Like the Dion, the Dionysian rituals and shit. I think so. Yeah, it's it's like an ancient concept of of like a uh, of like a green place. It's, I, th- I think it's specifically like it's a, also a city. I think uh, the Inland Empire in California too. <laughs> is it really? Yep. It's pretty badass. Um, well, I don't have much more to add except for. Well, hang on. I had, know. I had like two more things. Okay. But they're just. It's like I got a shitload. <laughs> no, no, more no. no. I had two more details. No, I, I, I wanted to make sure. That well, hang we... on, hang on. I have an answer for you, Dan. While, while we're stopped for a moment. So Arcadia is uh, synonymous with utopia, and it refers to a vision of pastoralism in harmony with nature, derived from the Greek province of the same name, which dates to antiquity. So it is an as it's an ancient Greek concept of a utopia. Very cool. Yeah, and I think I got the sense of that without knowing that history, but it's cool to hear it. Um, I also wanted to just briefly touch on the very direct, and they've always been there, the touches back to the original film, the spinners, the L.A. scenes, but they were even more specific, I felt like, in this volume. Uh, For one, you see a VK machine up close, which I don't Mm -hmm. know if we've seen in the series yet in volume one, but we certainly saw it here, which was... No, and Ash makes reference to that because she says, I've I've heard of this, but I've never actually seen it. Right, always always a welcome... Wait a uh, minute. I feel like the first episode, uh, uh, episode, the first issue... Of this entire series, there was a VK machine. The first one. Well, well, I have it sitting next to me. I'm going to look that up while you keep talking. Okay. Okay. So possibly it's second iteration, but the VK is always welcome. Anytime I get to see a VK machine, I'm stoked. Yeah. Um, there's also a very, very 
uh, direct depiction of an off-world blimp with like the exact yep. 80s yep. neon off-world screen yep. on it, which I was like, my heart. <laughs> it's just so much nostalgia in that one panel. Um, and did you? And the balcony scene. Yes, the balcony. I that balcony like, is so cool. I was like, exact. wow. It's, it's like, just like Deckard's, yeah. Yeah, it's not like identical, right? They, they. It's, it's not. It, um, well, the the perspective mm-hmm. and their stance and looking down on the street is identical, mm-hmm. right? All the angles, like the shot is identical. It's, it's blocky slight, though too. It's bulky. Like, oh, for sure. It, the design, the bones of it are identical. Like the details are slightly different. It's obviously, they're not at Deckard's apartment, right? Like they're, but it's, it's a very, very clear um, throwback to that. And I really love that. I, I thought that the throwbacks in the series, both the volumes, they were done with, tact and they were done like to where they're obvious and no one's gonna miss them you don't have to be a genius to figure it out but they're subtle and they fit well and i really like that i thought it was a nice balance compared to so many other things that don't do nostalgia right where they're just like throwing stuff in there and it feels forced and and um and pigeonholed this was i think very well balanced and i really loved to see that just a quick point. Uh, I have a quick point on that. And also, I, I did a very cursory flip through of the first arc, and I did not see any VK machines. Okay. It doesn't mean that there are, are none, because I, I just felt like did I saw in 20 one, but... seconds. But there, there, are, there are a lot of machines in it. I don't know about a VK necessarily. Um, but to your point, Dan, I also appreciate because when actually when I saw the blimp, I had kind of the opposite reaction. I was like, oh, come on. Like, it's, it's so it's so one to one. But Ash addresses it in that panel or on that page at least where she says something to the effect of i have to keep pinching myself to remind myself that this is not home that this is this other city um but it it feels and looks so much like it that it's it's confusing her and so when when they're in that sort of deckard's apartment thing it's supposed to feel for us as readers that it's los angeles but but we are being reminded by the characters that it's not and indeed if you look at the details that are just out of frame and the topography of the city it's very clearly not but you know the signs the cultural references the architecture, it feels at least superficially like Los Angeles. And I think that's kind of the point. What's interesting, though, too, is that, of course, that's another glimpse of an off-world colony. Um, and what I what I love is that, again, we're not actually seeing it because what we're shown is basically Los Angeles, right? Which is a 100% a, a choice that Green is making here to continue to, to not answer questions for us, right? Like we're off world, but we're kind of just seeing a copy of what was back on world again. We're in a city that's that's confusing the characters because it feels so much like it's still Los Angeles. And she's like, I have to, I have to remember that I'm not. And I think that's the point. I, I mean, all, all, we, all we have seen now in these comics of off world experience are basically a rock with mining equipment and Los Angeles, which is a, a very intentional. And I, and I love that. And, you know, it's it'd be cool to see what else uh, is coming up in the next four issues. One specific full page panel that I thought was beautiful was all the ships in space, and it looks like a big gate. Yeah, I love um, that. I thought it was really that one's awesome. authentic. That's one of those splash pages I was talking yeah, about. Yeah, I, I haven't seen anything like that before. I was like, I want to see this in a film. This was beautiful. It reminded me a tiny little bit of Dune, but also, yes, not Dune. It's just the ships. There was a little bit of a spinner design going on there. I just thought it was really, really well done in a in a uh, uh, an issue or several issues that are just top of the line. It's it's amazing. Uh, just reference the ships. There's a little bit of the Sulaco in them, which we yes, see. Yes, there is. Oh yeah, as well, yes. like the oh, yeah. Is that. yeah. It's very interesting. Yeah, and it looks like there's Roncop production design uh, things in there. Like there's one ship that looks just like an early Nostromo design. And there's also uh, like that that one. So this is for anybody with the collected edition. This oh you know what? It's about halfway through. I don't know what the page number is, but it's another one of these things uh, similar to the to the shot of the ship burning on the surface of the planet where there's kind of a jump cut because we're on this claustrophobic interior of the of the mutiny ship right, and they're talking to Ramanuja Control and Ramanuja is the Los Angeles copy that's in this book right. Um, and you know, we're seeing just this really close up interior of the ship. This is great filmmaking, right? This is, this is what you do. It's a, it's a, not only a tight interior, but it's so tight that it's just looking at people's mouths as they're talking into the microphone. And then you turn the page and it's just this crazy, vast, expansive open space thing with this amazing gate and this, like this passive, it looks almost like a, like a, like a, uh, a portal, um, like a portal or like a. What's it? What the hell is it? Customs. It looks like a customs waypoint or something where before you're allowed to go down to the surface of Ramanuja, you have to like check in and you have to have things declared and, you know, et cetera. 
And uh, yeah, and, and that that use of scale. I mean, like he, I feel like like Guinaldo should have signed this thing and made it uh, just a piece of art for purchase because it's freaking amazing, and it's just in the middle of an issue, you know. One thing that I um, keep thinking about again because I feel like by the end of um, this collection, I had a lot of questions about replicants. But one thing that I and as you know, discuss soul and all of those things that we've hit on before is how they are manufactured because that's the term that's used. They're manufactured. So they're not grown in a uterus. They're not grown in, in large uteruses that are run by robotics. They're manufactured. One of them, one of them them was, one of them was, yes. Um, So what, I'm just, it's so I, I'm interesting. I'm going to push back we, on that. We we saw the way the newborn is delivered, not the way she was grown. Yeah, but I'm using the term, I'm basing the term manufactured as, and then you have 2019 where they're looking at different eyes. So these parts are coming together from, they're being sourced from different places. Even Staline operates on one specific portion of memory. So you have essentially these things that are assembled somehow. We don't know. I don't know if we'll ever know. How do you infuse a personality into something that's assembled? It would be, and I know we brought up the idea of clones, and of course, you know, people are being disappointed by clones of their their animals because they're not the same. Because in large part, that's just what's going to happen. Life does that. Whereas this process is very different. These, you know, you have so much engineering and so much manufacturing going on. How does? I'm just the question that I left that this series with is how do these these things now i'm calling them things because i don't even know what they are um how are they given a personality who gives them a personality how do you manufacture a personality in something if it's born that's different of course they have a personality these things aren't born they're created and if just like my i'm thinking Except about for one of them i think i'm thinking about things that i've never thought about before thanks to this series so thank you for pushing me to read it, Patrick. <laughs> yeah, of course. The, the, one, the one that I keep interjecting with is Staline, right? Who's an exception yeah. to the whole thing. And so she Maybe. kind of broke the world, right? Yeah. Although we don't know very much about, about her either. But but to, to me, she's the example of like the mold breaker replicant who was born. Mm-hmm. But who, who knows? You know. I, my favorite description, and I've, I've struggled to find the source that I got this from. I feel like I just read it in the dictionary at some point, but I haven't been able to find it again. So who knows um but in describing replicants as a facsimile the definition was um a copy without an original and i think that says a a lot i really love that concept where it's like they're copying these somehow they're copying these ideas of human nature and human dna and human behavior but at the same time, not having they're not being clones and not having an original creates problems, right? These replicants, in one way or another, are trying to find their own place in this world, their own personality. They're creating their own history. The Nexus Sixes that we see in the first film are that's why they're so attached to pictures because all the memories they have are just the ones they've been creating over those couple of years. And so you can imagine how a Nexus 8, who just like them, if they haven't escaped, is just doing slave labor or whatever. And, and again, it's a very human thing, right? Slaves have been a thing all over history in the world. And people have written diaries. And people have had this experience of not really getting to experience human potential and human life to the fullest. Um, and there's an emotional side of that that we can all relate to, but there's a physical side of that where people who have been in that situation and have been slaves in other countries or in our past even, um, can relate to, uh, or or at least theoretically can relate to. And I think that, yeah, that it's, it's such a cool concept. I think that's why there's so much digging to do when it comes back to replicants. It's the difference. It was the genius, right? Of Philip Dick and in, Philip Dick and Ridley Scott and Hampton Fancher, but all these people that came together to create this concept, because as much as I love something like Terminator, um, it's so different. 
right? You're talking about building a robot and giving it human-like abilities or the ability to mimic a human uh, or, you know, copy the voice of a human. It's totally different and much more simple to get a handle mentally over what that thing is. You can view it as a thing. You can destroy it and not feel bad, first of all, because it's trying to kill you, but secondly, because it's just a piece of machinery, right? Um, Replicants aren't like that, right? And, And we can see characters who treat them like that and how that makes us feel and it makes us think how would we treat them could we have a relationship with one um would we feel the same empathy towards them i think each of us when we dig down we know the answer to that question if we put ourselves in those situations but it creates so many so much layered nuance when you put them in these situations mixed with humans owners hunters policemen um, replicants that don't know they're replicants, replicants that are that are aware, replicants that are trying to rebel. I mean, that's a huge part of what makes this world so rich. Um, and a lot of the curiosity and intrigue that we have, um, I think, is born of the ambiguity that every creator in this universe has been able to carry on so beautifully and answer a few questions along the way, but ask deeper questions and ask you more questions and that's i think what really keeps us coming back to this universe and it's my favorite part of it isn't it amazing that like it's this has been around now for four decades essentially and like we're still just as confused about the answers to these questions even though we we know so much more or at least we think we do like we're still plumbing these same exact issues and that's that's why we can't leave it that's that's why this is a part of our heart you know um just and, and as we you know, close. Uh, for me, the the idea of what replicants are is contained in the word nexus. I think you know, which means a connection. Um, I think I think replicants are the human adjacent. You know, I, I think that they are the bridge between us and something ineffable, something we don't know about yet. And I think that's that's kind of why they're so mysterious. And I, I think that there's there's this fundamental unanswerable question there about um, why are they different from us just because of the way that they're created. You know, and, th- and that that question makes us ask then who are we, you know? And and then that launches into that beautiful cycle that keeps spinning through all these works. And that's something I'm, I'm really glad about in these comic books is very much in the beating heart at the center of them is that same question of identity. And it doesn't feel overdone. It's, it's so weird that it doesn't feel boring yet. You know, like it doesn't feel, um, cheap and predictable. No, I don't, I don't, I don't even know why I don't, I honestly don't know why. I mean, we, we have, you know, two films, we have comics, we have a video game, we have some sequels that we don't talk about. We have a novel, you know, we, we have, we have a bunch of different things now we have, you know, the original comics, we have, we have this ongoing series. Um, we have shorts, we have an upcoming anime. Um, and they're all and the things, the, the best of them all address the same exact question of who the fuck are we? Um, and they do it all in such poetic and different ways. And, and this comic, 100% carries on that legacy for me. It, it, it Just like Jamie was saying, it, it leaves me with a whole different way of thinking about replicants, or it, 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 it builds out the way that I think about replicants. Um, because in this one, we see them interacting with each other as casts. You know, we see them interacting as, with each other as, um, they, it's not, they're not in lockstep with each other, right? When we see the, the replicants in the first film, like they're very much all of a mind, right? Like to varying degrees, like they, they are on a mission. They're doing something very specific. Um, in 2049, the replicants that we see by and large are, are, you know, actually part of this resistance movement that's, you know, kind of an uprising. Um, and there's not much of a commentary between replicants other than in the beginning, of course, when Sapper addresses, you know, the fact that Kay is a different nexus from him and that, you know, he's happy scraping the shit because he's never seen a miracle. But in these this ongoing series of books now, which is coming up on 12 issues, we are continually revisiting that idea and seeing replicants interacting with other replicants and commenting on their differing outlooks and their differing personalities and they're differing in judging each other, you know? And, um, and I, and I, I just, we haven't had that yet. And I just, I just absolutely love it. And I am so glad that we have many more issues to look forward to. Um, and I, I really would love to invite everybody listening to this to join the conversation at Fields of Calantha, where um, we, I, I personally would love, now that you guys are catching up on the comics, I really want to be able to be more open in talking about them. And I, I, I hope that everybody listening to this as well, catch up on the comics if you can, and let's go there and talk about them. Because up until now, most of my conversations have been text message based on these things, because everybody's kind of at different 
you know, stages of reading them. But it, I think we should all catch up and talk about it openly because it's it's really fascinating. And hopefully we'll be able to get people like Green and Guinaldo um, and Mike Johnson on at some point um, and, and talk to them in more depth about this work. And if we do, um, we really hope to share that with you and go from there. And uh, for those of you listening, we have a program called Patreon. If you want to sign up, it's if you go to bladerunnerpodcast.com forward slash support, sign up for two bucks a month. You can get uh, obviously everything that we do, but uh, a, a whole nother show called Framerate where we re-review movies that we love. So if you guys are interested in that, um, go and sign up two bucks a month. We'd love to have you. All of your money goes to su- back to support the show. So you get, thanks for uh, listening. You get two uh, extra podcasts a month. We we do a minimum of two films a month on that show. Sometimes we throw in a third, like we did a Halloween special recently. Um, last episodes that were memorable for me, I mean, we did Predator recently. Jimmy and I uh, just are putting out Vertigo, which is his favorite film, an old Hitchcock. Um, Patrick and I did Lawrence of Arabia recently, which was very intensive and a lot of research and really fun. So yeah, it's a, it's a cool opportunity. I love it because it's an opportunity for us to explore other films, which we talk about informally all the time, but it's nice to do it in a podcast uh, format. And uh, it's really great to share it with you guys. And Patreon has its own message thread that we communicate on there where we can talk about things. And um, yeah, so thanks a lot to all the current patrons and all our friends who support us and um yeah looking forward to talking to you guys on the next episode thanks everybody if you would like to find out more about shoulder of orion the blade runner podcast please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com If you would like to support the show via Patreon, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com forward slash support. Thank you.